I'm Richard Fieldhouse, and this is the NESGP's podcast, The Art of GP Locoming. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Amy Small, um, who many of you will, will no doubt already have heard about. Amy's been a very active in the GP world, in the GP community, and also more latterly with, with, with working uh, with, with charity uh, with Long COVID. So, um, so a- Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Really nice to have you along. And I think what I'd really like to do is 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 um, talk really about uh, about you and about your your background, your your medical training, um, and what, what's brought you into general practice, and and sort of explore your career as a GP and the things you've done with that with that qualification and and things you've done outside of it as well that that relate to it. So why don't you first of all tell us a bit about about where you trained and, and what you got up to and how you progressed through the sort of the pre-GP curriculum as it were. Yeah, so I went to St George's um, Hospital Medical School in Tooting in London yeah. uh, back in 99. That's um, where I was, I didn't know ah, that. Old alumni, <laughs> there you go. Well, there you go. Um, and um, uh, so yeah, I, I grew up in, in uh, on and off in, in Surrey and, and wanted to stay in the London region and ended up at George's um after one of the best um open days they had the epic open days where they take you around and, and really sort of fell in love with the place um i didn't actually get the grades to get into med school um and um had to almost talk my way in um so after the uh, a level results came out i emailed them every single day i faxed them i phoned them <laughs> on a daily basis and i think after a week or so and the, the release of clearing places they said uh, dear miss small thank you for your 35 emails 25 faxes 10 phone calls we're pleased to announce you've got a place for clearing so sometimes persistence does pay off yeah yeah um, all that tenacity they must have really loved that in the end wasn't they you yeah well i don't know i mean i was eight when i decided i was going to be a doctor i was um uh, my father was american so i was avidly raised on doogie hauser md and mash and St. elsewhere and all these other medical programs that i loved so for me it, it was it was not ever a question of, of not doing it but it was just how to get there um, so yeah, I went to George's. I had an absolute blast. Probably too much fun in the first year. I failed my first year <laughs> after I, I I partied hard. And uh, when everyone said they weren't doing any work, I didn't realise they actually were doing work. And, and it was at that point I realised that actually you really do need to get your head down. But and, you were gaining um, empathy, weren't you? That's what it was yeah. all about. You were training in the <laughs> University of Life. No, I like that. It's a good tactic. Uh, I think I think medical's probably changed these days. I think medical students generally are a lot more serious. Um, they they don't have as many opportunities. I think to sort of let their hair down as we probably did in those days um but um, but all the way through med school i was involved with stuff so i um got quite involved with the union i co-directed the rag rag week charity um fashion show in the final year i helped organize the grad ball um various bits and bobs um i worked in the union bar all the way through um so always kind of medicine was major for me but i've always been someone else that's done other bits as well um medicine wasn't my entire identity um and i was the kind of person that every placement i ever did at med school i was like oh that's what i'm gonna do that's what i'm gonna do that's what i'm gonna do and so um loved psychiatry loved pediatrics loved um obstetrics um really kind of enjoyed every bit that i did and then when i got into my final year i did my my second gp placement and I was out in Farnborough at an all-female partnership, um, and 
got to see some amazingly strong leadership, some fantastic women that had set up a really great practice. They were really close to their community. Um, they had a big um, Gurkha community there. Um, also sort of, you know, um, uh, more typical farm patients. And then, you know, one of the partners did minor op another one um, used to go to the local child, children's hospice, which they had a contract, they, they, they did some work there. And they really showed me how varied general practice could be, how many different things you could do. Um, yet they all told me about their families and they had a good work-life balance. And for me, that was really the point at which I thought, yeah, this is what I want to get into. Um, I really enjoyed it. So like like medical school, your your GP, your experience of GP was about that sort of work-life balance. You, when you were at medical school, you were balancing, not always in the best way with work <laughs> and the life, but you've, you've, and that's what, what, uh, what it sort of intrigued you with general practice then. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, as a woman, you know, I think, you know, I, I had those dreams to get married and have children. And I um, particularly, you know, back in those days, um, you know, it still was the sort of the women was the, the, the were the main caregivers. And, the, you know, even though this was in the early, early noughties, I think we've come a lot further now in how we split our work life, you know, work and balance family balance between the sexes. But I think back then it was still very much, you know, women would do everything and and go out to work as almost as an added bonus. Um, whereas I think now we probably do have the balance a lot better um you know certain things have come into play like shared parental leave didn't exist you know back then um and so you know i think i certainly went in with my eyes open knowing that if i wanted to have a family life and things that and i and i didn't want to wait till i was too late my mother had me at 37 and had real issues with that and it was always in the back of my mind that i didn't want to start my family life too late if in case i wasn't you know lucky enough to have to have children um so um and i looked at friends and colleagues who were who were doing you know crazy shifts till well into their 30s juggling that with babies and night shifts and all the rest of it none of that appealed to me um alongside the fact I did actually just generally like general practice. I loved the day-to-day -day work and, and what you got to do with it. So for me, it was a pretty, pretty easy decision. And you had, and you had, uh, but also you were obviously very impressed by that strong female leadership that you discovered in general practice, and something you'd been doing during medical school with your fashion show and um, and and rag week and all that sort of thing as well. So that I, I guess that you, 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 I guess you identified with those GPs more. It's funny you don't you don't at the time. So much of this I now reflect back and look at the influence they had on me, and I I, I look back at who I who I am now and what I was then. And actually, yes, when you see all the things I've done now, it kind of makes sense that that was sort of my trajectory. But at the time, I totally didn't. I totally well, didn't see that. I didn't realise that about myself. But you never do when you're that age, do no. you? Like, like, you know, life is just a completely en endless sort of discovery, isn't it? And, and like yes. you say, you were you were going around everything you did. You 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 sort of launched into yourself and were enthusiastic about. You had that open mindset. So, had you had a closed mindset, I guess things would be a different story. Yeah. But you might have known where you would have ended up. I guess. Yeah. And so then you obviously then you went into did you did, did you go straight into GP training from from that? So I was the last year before MTAS um, came in, and I had done my house jobs, um, and so I was the old um, 
registration house officer. We didn't have FY1, FY2 at that stage. And then the MTAS was on the horizon. So if I had taken any time out after my PRHO year, I would have got sucked up into that new scheme. And I didn't want to, because as you remember mm. at the time, there were big demonstrations mm. and, and a, a lot of upheaval around that. And although I would have liked to have done some extra bits, like I've never done A&E um, and my, my BTS training scheme didn't have A&E as part of it. And in an ideal world, I would have done at least six months of A&E as part of my training. Um, I decided to quickly apply for the BTS straight from house officer um, to make sure that I didn't get lost in that that commotion that was going on at the time. So I, I, I managed to, um, and it's funny, like back then it was massively competitive. There were 17 applicants for the post that I went for in general practice. Um, and when you see how things have changed now, it, it's, it's actually really sad. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it was super competitive and I was really lucky to get my, my first choice. And I did a funny, uh, a funny scheme where I did three months as a reg before my two SHO years and then went back to do nine months as a reg at the end. So I had this funny split registration year, um, or you know, uh, I guess now what you'd call GPST three hmm. um, registrar year. But actually, it was really helpful because those first three months showed me what I then needed to get out of the next two years before I then came back to do my last nine months as a reg. At the end. Was that intentional? Was that part of how they did the VTS? Yeah. Scheme? So they had they had three jobs on my scheme at that particular area, and one of them had the split. And the other two didn't, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, and so I went for that one because, A, I really liked the practice. Um, it was on a, a deprived housing estate in Roehampton. And um, and I just found that whole area really interesting. Um, and so I thought, well, let's let's do that. And and then as I did it, I realized actually it was genius because it really it really showed me what I needed to get out of those next two years. It did mean, though, that I only had nine months at the end to do my exams and other things. So in some ways that was a little more pressured, but then I was mm. the first year of the new exam, the new um, AKT, the new CSA. I was the first lot to do, I think the AKT and probably the second or third lot to do the CSA. So all of that was still relatively new at that point, um, which had its advantages, I think probably. And and then you, you so you, you completed your GP training and then when you were doing your GP training, did you, we, 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 did you know where you wanted to be working? Had you had any idea of that at that stage? Um, no, I think I really enjoyed the deprivation factor. And, and when I, when I qualified, um, in 2008, I did some random locums, you know, I just, picked I can't remember I did a bit of agency work and a bit of, sort of random word of mouth work and I did you know random jobs where I'd sit on the tube from one end of the line to the other and end up in Stepney Green when no one spoke English and 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 you know the the receptionists were were, were translating Bengali 10 minute appointments and I felt completely like a fish out of water to then I did a six month locum in a, in a very posh practice in Surrey um uh, actually not far from where I grew up and hated it and at that point that really that cemented coming. to me actually i'm i'm very much a deprivation gp and that's that's what i really enjoy and that's where i get the most job satisfaction so in many ways it was helpful because it really taught me that time what i did want and what i didn't want and that was the beauty of that flexibility of, of doing all these random jobs because it, it really helped me to to go actually yeah no you do like deprivation 
yes that's what you know but that is actually what you like and that is what you enjoy and off the back of that i then managed to get a salaried post um in earlsfield which was largely deprived multi-ethnic had a little bit of you know and it was becoming a more up and coming an area so we had quite a good mix probably of patients um but i remained salaried there until i moved to edinburgh in, in 2010. and so and the did the deprivation GP bit? The the what what what? So digging into that a bit deeper, what 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 is that then? What what would you say is thinking back maybe over some cases? What was it that that made you really enjoy that aspect of general practice? I feel like so many people in these deprived populations have no one to really listen to them. They don't have a voice. I feel as a GP, we can truly be their advocates. You know, when you navigate the healthcare system, which is so challenging and getting more and more challenging, um, I really feel with that population, you can genuinely make a good difference. Um, it's funny because I, I later on did, um, when I had qualified as part of my locum work, I did a bit of private GP out of hours where I'd go to all the posh hotels in Knightsbridge and then I'd go to some posh houses and 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 in central London and we would basically the phones from the private GPs in central London would click over to 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 this service and we would take all the calls and we'd either do house visits telephone consultations or or, or go to the hotels and and I remember seeing one of the patients and they all raved about this one private GP in London they all thought she was wonderful and I said to them, I said, what is it that's so great about this doctor? What do you, you know, everyone, you know, really raves about her. And what, what is it that's so, you know, what, what is it that she does so well? I really want to, I want to learn from this. And one of them said to me, she always knows exactly who to refer you to. And I thought, I don't want that to be my legacy. Like when I did a lot of more affluent work, I felt like a lot of the time people were coming in, telling me how to do my job. There was a bit of condescension in it and, and and then just you know here can you refer me to this place or do, and, and didn't necessarily trust that i had my own you know clinical knowledge and experience and yeah and i'm you know i'm generalizing here and of course there are plenty of patients who who in, in all areas who you can make good changes with and, and all the rest of it but i really felt that in deprivation i could make a difference and i felt that i had a way of communicating that people felt that they were listened to um they trusted me i was approachable um and i was trying also to just i mean i grew up my pet my dad's american my mum's norwegian brought up in paris i lived in the middle east for a while as a child randomly i was a refugee for a bit um i have a a, a really weird and varied background that's made me so empathetic to other people and i've uh, yes, I'm probably one of the most middle-class ref refugees you ever meet, but <laughs> in, in that way that that I understand what it means to have lost and I understand what it means to have that uncertainty. So when you come across these populations who are struggling and living in a, in a situation that's so out of their comfort zone or or whatever, I feel like I, I, I genuinely can listen and be there and they and I've always had that feedback that 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 I understood. So yeah it was a personal thing as much as just a professional one as well just you know wanting to to develop that you've got that sort of connect you've got a, a sort of a ready almost like a ready-made connection with them you've got that 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 um empathy you've got that diverse background of of, of being raised in different countries perhaps yeah um 
And so you then, so after your training in Roehampton, you then moved to Scotland. Yeah, so I, I I worked for a couple of years in London, salaried, locum and salaried, and then my 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 then boyfriend, who became my husband, um, got a job at Edinburgh University, and and um, so we decided to take the leap and move up there, and it was really interesting because at the time, I had been applying for salary jobs, partnerships um, around London, and and I was really wanting to try and find somewhere that I could kind of sink my teeth into in a mm. practice and really kind of get involved. I, I was a salaried. In a, in a huge practice where it was made very clear that we would never be anything more than salaried, that, 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 that the, the role sort of stopped there. And I kind of knew I wanted more than that. And so I'd applied for a few partnerships in London and I kept getting down to the last two and I kept being told, oh, there was nothing in it. And every time the job went to a man mm. and, um, and I probably sound jaded, but I was 20, 28, 29, you know, as a woman of a certain age, as, as a partner, I could see why, you know, that this happened. But it was really frustrating and I just couldn't get my foot in the door anywhere. And so when my husband said, let's move to Scotland, had a look and actually then salary jobs at that point didn't really exist in Scotland. It, they were really un, unheard of. They were a couple that were popping up, but it was mostly partnerships and you could apply for partnerships um, confidently. And so I went for it. I went for a role. I went for a few jobs, but I went for this one job in, the, in this deprived mining village. Um, in East Lothian, and I, um, uh, I specifically went for a practice that didn't have any nursing homes. I, I had a real issue with practices that worked in that had nursing homes, and this one didn't. And I thought, okay, this is this is one good thing, and and I liked the deprivation, and I liked the idea of of, of you know that I met the partners, and they seemed great. And um, but at that point as well, I think there were something like thirty five people that applied for the partnership. Good grief! And two years later, we advertised as a partnership to replace our then senior partner who was retiring, and we got ten applicants. So between ten to twenty. 10 and 2012 that's when everything changed in general practice and so when i got the partnership i was taken on as an eight session partner and they were also advertising for a six session partner and because they were expanding and um my my colleague that started at the same time she'd also just moved from london um so they were clearly wanting to modernize things change things up a bit they still wrote on paper in that practice um, they weren't fully computerized. It was, it was somewhat, um, old school. Yeah. Um, and so that they, I think they were taking on two new people with it, with a slightly different vision because things were more advanced in London at that point than they were in Scotland. Um, and, um, and we started to create something great. Did you, that, that, that move from, from London to Scotland, that, 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 that thing over two years when the market sort of crashed for, for people applying for permanent general practices, uh, do you have any inkling, did you have any inkling at the time why that might be the case or you now looking back on it, why that, what, 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 do you, what, what suddenly changed? Was it just all of a sudden they just, people retired or what do you think was going on? It was cumulative, wasn't it? I mean, I think over that two year period, um, I, I really struggled with the workload, you know, the, the, the amount of stuff that was coming our way, I was an eight session partner doing 55 hour weeks. Um, I, I remember like, cause at that stage in Scotland, we still had quaff and, you know, I remember sitting there with, uh, with the software and like pop-up boxes were coming. Have you checked their BP? Have you done this? Have you done that? You know, there were no, when I was a GP trainee, we got to go to the local hospital on a Thursday and have lunch with the consultants. And, you know, we did, we'd go to Grand Round and there was still time in the day 
in 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 2008 um to do those things whereas when it by the time it got to 2011 you know all that paperwork all that bureaucracy all that stuff that just been accumulating <laughs> yeah got worse and worse and worse <clears throat> so actually come 2012 this was at the point i started to get involved with the bma um i was burning out I'd only been a partner for two years, but I couldn't do eight sessions. Um, I started to really struggle. I started to panic. I started to actually, rather than run late, my appointments started to run faster and faster and faster. Um, and I would I would try and nail a consultation in about six minutes because I had nothing left to give to patients because I was so burnt out by everything that was just being fired at me day in, day out. And I find I found that whole time really confusing because I was like, I love being a GP mm. and I wouldn't do anything else. But why am I finding it so hard? And it was at that point that I really was hitting very, very close to burnout. I wasn't sleeping properly. I was permanently stressed. Um, I ended up having a demyelinating episode, I think, as a consequence of that. Um, and I realized, actually, I need to something has to change here and it's at that point that I dropped down uh, with the with the agreement of my partners to six sessions which became a lot more manageable and that's the point at which I became much more a portfolio um GP and when you so so you you dropped your hours as a partner but you took then you you took on other work did you outside of being a GP partner yeah so um in 2010 when I first moved up I got an email from the BMA um uh, what do they call themselves? The JMF, the Junior Medics Forum, um, that said, you know, are you the kind of person that uh, likes to make change? Are you not very good at sitting by the sidelines and 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 blah blah blah? And I was like, yes, that's me. You know, I, I I'm, I've always been rubbish at just like sitting by the sidelines and 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 you know, I, I've always had to sort of think, if, well, nothing's going to change it unless you're the person in there doing that, you know. And so I got this email and I thought, great. So I went up the Junior Junior Members Forum in, in, in Newcastle in, in 2010 and, and learned about the BMA for the first time. I I really didn't know what the BMA was. I had never really heard much about the LMCs. I didn't know any of, none of that had been as part of my GP training. I, I had had no involvement with that. And um, and so over those two years, I, well, I went to the Junior Members Forum and I happened to sit next to Peter Benny, who was the then chair of Scottish Council. I know he was the chair of the representative body of the BMA actually at that point. And I happened to sit next to him on the train home back up to edinburgh and i said you know this is really cool i like this bma stuff i like this policy making and i want to know more and he said well go along to your local um division there'll be an, an agm around now go along find out what they're doing and and they'll be delighted to see you and i didn't realize when i showed up of course me showing up as a young female i, I reduced the average age of the room <laughs> 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 considerably it was one of the very few women in there and, and they were so excited to wow. see someone new who really wanted to to, to get involved and they're like will you be our gp rep and i, I was like okay fine <laughs> um and um as with most things in the bma if you put your hand up once you'll, you'll never get out again um but so it was around 2012 that i um got involved and i i went to the annual uh, the arm the annual representatives meeting um i think it was down in in southampton and i got elected to the gp committee 
the UK. So I did things a bit backwards. I started at the top national level and then managed, I'd been trying to get onto the LMC, but our LMC was really popular and really com um, competitive. And uh, so I hadn't managed to get elected locally um, to that, although I'd been as an observer to a few things because um, I was trying to get my foot in the door, but it was hard because I'd come to a new area. I didn't know anyone. They didn't know me, you know, and, and, and I just had to sort of keep, keep, keep my head down and keep grinding until I finally got in. So um, I got co-opted then onto the local medical committee in, in Lothian because uh, I was on the UK GP committee. And then um, a couple of years after that, 2014, I think I managed to get my seat in my own right. I got elected when someone retired. Um, but yeah, it was at that point that I started to do these things. Um, I became the secretary of the division and, um, and uh, yeah, I really got got stuck into to, to medical politics, which I knew nothing about beforehand. Were there particular policies or changes you wanted to sort of see or be part of, or was it more being part of a movement that was out there doing the work of the BMA, supporting general practice and doctors? Yeah, I think it's I mean, what someone uh, described me as a pathological enthusiast. <laughs> Um, which was probably is a pretty good one. I like I mean, it. I think... yeah. yeah, I own that one. I own that one. <laughs> I think, um, so for example, in 2012, when I went to the ARM, uh, we had all received um, an email about how we had to prescribe vitamin D to patients because they weren't getting enough vitamin D. And, you know, and I remember seeing, we were starting to see kids with rickets again and, and it was all this and lots of adults with osteomalacia. And, and I thought this was all very odd that they were telling us to prescribe vitamin D, but there was nothing for us to prescribe. I don't know if you remember back then, but we weren't actually allowed to prescribe anything. Well, there weren't any medications on the formulary anywhere for us to prescribe. So we get this letter saying GPs must prescribe, yet there was nothing to do. And I thought this is ridiculous. Like, how can they tell us to do this yet not back us up? So it was a very small thing that really irked me. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a motion on this um because i thought well, that's that's how we get involved so i wrote a motion and it got debated and there was some press and and um and that's and lots of people said oh that was brilliant and and um and that's how i got involved so it was more kind of the activism part and the other bit i loved about the bma was the fact that we are one profession so i got to go back and see really enthusiastic medical students junior doctors, hospital colleagues, because that's the problem with general practice is you can get so siloed and you can work in your own bubble and you work in your practice all the hours that, that God gives you, but you don't get to see the outside world. And mm. it, at that time, we were really starting to see that huge primary secondary care divide and lots of tit for tat and people being very cross with each other and workload dumping, as we call it, and all the mm. rest of it. And I thought there must be a better way of us working together on this because we are all one profession. Um, so it was a lot of that bit of the BMA that also really inspired me. And, and when you go to the annual representatives, representatives meeting, there are lots of breakout groups and um, social events um, and other things where you really get to see all those other walks of life in medicine. And, and, and that I found really motivating and inspiring. So, so the, you're talking about almost like a cross-party thing, I guess it would be talked about in in, in government terms. But it's but in terms of uh, hospital doctors and GPs working together on is that work more on things that 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 we have in common as GPs with hospital doctors, or is it to try and bring people together when there isn't much common ground? Or you know, why are we doctors? We look after patients and who's the heart at the heart of everything we do. It's patients. And, and I always think like, 
as a patient, and I now you know I've been on the other side of that a lot. What's the patient journey? And and you see a lot of that as a GP. You know what what a frankly crap time patients have trying mm. to navigate the NHS and how many barriers there are set up left, right, and centre. That's that's not nothing to do with them, and 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 it's not their fault that these barriers are there, and it's not the fault of the doctors working in the system. It's it's but but these things happen and how do we overcome those and make the patient journey smoother and better for them we can only do that together so i was part of one of the first primary secondary care interface groups in scotland that was set up years ago um as an activist um a colleague carrie lunan who later became the, the the chair of the scottish rcgp um and now does a lot of government work she she sort of thought we've really got to do something with this and and she said who wants to come along for the ride and i put my hand up i really want to do this and yes it was a group of activists so we had secondary care colleagues from pediatric a e to um medical director renal physicians to anaesthetists to you know all sorts of different people but we all had a common goal and that was to improve the the interface between primary and secondary care and we did some really great work. And it's really struck me now, moving area, moving away from that, moving to somewhere which unfortunately hasn't been quite as functional as that, how it's desperately important that we improve those those communications at the interface and we really get activists around the table who want to make a difference there. I love the way you're using the word activist. I don't think I've come across that before. I always think of sort of the BMA, I think, yes, maybe a little bit stuffy, but you're not saying that. You're just saying, actually, you can do really good work and you can actually pick up on stuff that you're actually personally really passionate about and work with other passionate people to do something that is active and and and, and makes change. Before we move on to talking about COVID then, is, is there, have you got something more to say about how any of us listening might get more involved with the BMA follow your sort of route or 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 any other top tips I think if if you've never done anything go along to your local medical committee or LMC you know contact them ask them if you can come to a meeting as an observer so as a GP that's that's your starting point um so in terms of sort of general practice issues political issues LMCs are so important and 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 if you don't know them you need to know them um and um and then the other way to get involved and it depends on your area because they're not functional in all areas of the UK is your your local division so the BMA have various regional divisions and regional councils um and you just need to go onto the BMA website and um under your registration details it will tell you who your local division is and who represents you and there will be um somewhat regular meetings um in in the in the areas that have active divisions and if not there'll be regional councils and again you can just ask can i be an observer and if you want to look at more national things if you want to go and sit on the gp committee you can be an observer if you want to go to consultants committee or you want to go to the 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 council you can be observers at these things and i often think that's one of the best ways to just get started to see the discussions that i had um because it's only through activism that anything gets changed you know and and, and it's only only that way that, that you can you can make that difference um <laughs> So, so, so we've been talking then about your portfolio career and the first part of that that you've talked about is this activism, this passion and working with the BMA and the LMC. And that's something if, if people are thinking, yes, well, what could I do as a portfolio career? Well, you've just 
you've just beautifully illustrated one great example of something that we can all do and get in get involved with so the next the next thing to talk what I was going to talk about then is 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 is, is covid so talk talk us through 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 your involvement <laughs> with that so um uh, April 2020, um, I was a five session partner then at this point um, in East Lothian and I got sick um, at work from COVID. Um, I gave it to my husband and I gave it to my kids um, and subsequently my husband and I developed long COVID, which we didn't know what it was at the time, um, but um, we just didn't get better. Um, and through the platform that I developed with the BMA, I had quite a lot of Twitter followers. Um, and it became evident that there was this new emerging illness, long COVID, that was, that was you know, the, the, the people had named long COVID. And through Facebook and through Twitter, I started to look into it a bit more. And actually, I was looking for help initially. Um, I had done a failed phased return to work in, in, in June of that year, um, which left me effectively bed bound for 10 days afterwards. And at that point I completely panicked and thought, God, I, I'm going to have ME and I'm going to be disabled for the rest of my life. I'm never going to be able to work again. I'm going to lose everything. And I took to Twitter and said to, to, to people on Twitter, you know, hashtag people with ME, you know, what did you do to get better? And it opened up a world to me that I, I did not know was there um, and discovered a group that called themselves the Missing Millions. And people with, long, with, with chronic fatigue syndrome and ME, as we well know as clinicians, um, have largely been left to fester. The, the services out there for people with, long, with, with people with ME are woefully inadequate, mm. um, largely a postcode lottery. Um, and they call themselves the missing millions because they are diagnosed and then they are ignored. And there is so much stigma attached to the illness, um, created by our own colleagues, um, and unhelpful trials and other documents that have come out over, over the years. And I started to realize that no one was going to fight our corner unless we started fighting it ourselves. Um, the irony in all of that is you're completely exhausted and yeah. you can't work. <laughs> how do you do that and so in glippets of of when i did have bits of energy you know i started tweeting saying you know hang on who, who's looking out for us and and who's going to do something about this because there must be people out there that that you know have an interest or that that want to help there must be stuff we can learn from colleagues around the world there, there must be things emerging from this and started through that connecting to all sorts of different people. Um, uh, journalists um, contacted me. Um, I got involved with BBC and um, all sorts of other um, journalists, uh, articles in various magazines and newspapers about the plight of people living with long COVID. It became apparent over that summer that um, I was probably going to lose my job. I had a, a six month cutoff clause in my partnership agreement that said that if I was unable to work for six months, the others could vote to expel me. And long story short, you know, I think my, my partner's panicked that, that I was going to have ME and I wasn't going to be able to, you know, fully contribute to the partnership. And, uh, and that was a big risk for them. And, and so, um, I, I did lose my job at that point. And I, 
it's so hard to know where to go with this because so many different things happened and collided at the same time. But one of the things I did was I was part of a the UK Doctors with Long COVID Facebook group. And there was a group of doctors who were writing to the, the British Health Secretary, um, uh, who was Matt Hancock at the time, to say, you know, we've all got long COVID and we got sick at work. Um, this is an occupational illness. What are you going to do to help us and protect us? Because at this point, there was compensation coming in in other countries for doctors or healthcare workers who got sick. So even in October 2020, there were at least eight countries, including Belgium, Spain, Canada, who were paying out huge amounts of compensation to doctors who couldn't, you know, or healthcare workers who couldn't work. But yet in the UK, it hadn't even been recognised as an as an issue. Um, and um, so I got together with a group of Scottish doctors and wrote to Jean Freeman, who was the Scottish Health Secretary at the time, and said, you know, what are you going to do about this? A, we've got a whole bunch of patients who aren't getting the support and help they need and, and what's going to be done about them. And B, how are you going to support us as medics who got sick at work during a pandemic and we are now unable to work and unable to, you know, pay our mortgages? What are you going to do to, to support us? And she invited me to a meeting in January of 21 where there was a charity called Chest Heart Stroke Scotland who were bidding for some funding to um, help support people living with long COVID, um, managing their symptoms. So they had an advice line that was set up to manage chest, heart and stroke conditions, but they already knew a lot about breathlessness and pacing and fatigue management. And actually they'd worked out that probably we could extrapolate some of the work that they'd already done to help support people remotely um, who weren't being supported by the NHS. So I ended up at a meeting with them, with the health secretary, and she's just, we talked about the different things. And she said, you know, yes, this is part of the jigsaw puzzle, but I was still advocating for the fact that we needed better clinical services. So doctors managing the clinical aspects of COVID. Um, but I thought what Test Heart Stroke was doing, brilliant. And and they realized that through all the work I'd been doing, I sort of now got a, a level of expertise with, with how to manage COVID and the sequelae of COVID and the various complications that came with it. And they offered me some consulting work to help them set up this service. So I did just some consulting with them over. You started to improve by then, had you? You'd started to yeah, get better. Yeah. So, um, so the irony in all of this was back in September 20, when I was going to have my last meeting with my partners. Um, I was really nervous, obviously. I, I, I knew that was the job coming to an end. And I took some out of date beta blockers that um, I had from when my father was dying. And although it didn't particularly help with a meeting, I realized that I could walk up the stairs without stopping when I was taking these um, beta blockers, which I hadn't managed to do for five months. My, and I, I had been noticing that my, my resting heart rate was 55. You know, I had a good background fitness. So when I was lying down, my heart rate was 55. But when I stood up, it was 110. So I was standing there brushing my leg with my electric toothbrush and my watch was beeping at me saying you know are you at the gym kind of thing like, no I'm brushing my teeth you know and um and then every time and I hadn't been able to walk up the stairs like my house I lived in a double upper so I had these two sets of steep stairs and every time I wanted to go up the stairs I had to stop halfway up and I'd been having to do that for months I couldn't keep up with my three-year-old um who was really slow um without then becoming really unwell the next day or, or later on that day and so I phoned my GP and I said, oh, I've just lost my job, um, but I think I've got POTS. And and so um, postural orthostatic um, tachycardic syndrome um, is that when you stand up, your heart rate goes up inappropriately and um, it you become breathless and you can get brain foggy and you get all the symptoms that, that I got with long COVID. 
So um, she very kindly prescribed me then a cardio selector beta blockers. Of this is that if I hadn't lost my job, I probably wouldn't have had the medication. That's incredible, incredible. That <laughs> um, then helped me to get back to work. So two weeks after I lost my job officially, that the, the contract had ended, I started locoming. Um, and I started doing a phase return. I had luckily through all my contacts, through all the work I'd done in the LMC over the years, I had some really lovely, lovely, lovely colleagues who reached out to me and said, if there's anything we can do to help, um, please let us know. And um, they kind of mopped me up. And even then there was a, a, a practice who uh, one of the partners had been shielding. I'd met her at a meeting earlier on that year before COVID. And she'd said, oh, we've got some winter pressures money coming in. We want to do, we're going to put on some extra um, sessions we can offer you two to four sessions a week that you can do at your pace. So wow. we just want you to do two sessions worth of patience, but you dictate over the week how you want to do that. And that was incredible because that really allowed me to get my feet back into the table, get under the table, get confidence back again and, and allowed me to work again. So having the offer of uh, the freedom of flexibility was, was at that stage and yeah. your life had been turned upside down. You'd wanted to be a, a doctor since you were age 18. It must've gone through your mind lots of times that, that you might just, we know with, with this diagnosis coming up, that, that career might be over. So you must've been bouncing off the walls in terms of what you where you were going. The whole experience was incredibly traumatic. Mm. Um, you know, I was very close to my partners. We got on really well. You know, it wasn't just the end of a job. It was the end of a, of a partnership of, you know, mm -hmm. they say that partnerships like marriage, that whole experience was incredibly traumatic. And I lost a lot of good friends out of that. Um, and my husband was also six at the point when I lost my job, my roof was leaking. We were going through a remortgage and his salary was halving. And I had a kid in full-time nursery and, and I ended up contacting the Cameron Fund, which is a GP um, charity who were great. Um, they were really supportive. They they arranged, um, you know, they they paid for a financial advisor to meet with us. Um, and though luckily at that point, I after I'd met with them, I managed to locum, so I never needed their financial support. You know, they've always said, right, we'll keep all your stuff on record. Um, they helped me sort of work out bits that I could help to sort of lighten the load financially Amazing. at the time. Mm. And they've said, you know, we we keep everything on record. So if God forbid you ever get sick again. Um, you don't have to go through that entire process. We've got all your details um, and, and we are there for you. Um, and, and I've been heavily um, recommending at Cameron Fund to many colleagues who sadly, you know, I wasn't the first GP to lose my job out of this. I'm not the last. Um, and so um, it's just, you know, that was part of the work that I was doing alongside the BMA was really raising that plight um, uh, alongside what I was trying to do for patients. So more, more, more of your activism coming through here then as well, again, helping colleagues, um, 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 uh, with, with, who are struggling. And on that, you're now living in Sheffield. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, my husband got, uh, offered a, a chair position at the uni here in Sheffield and, um, it was a really good time to, to, to move. Um, it, it was time for a change of scenery, time to start again. And, um, I was very fortunate that the charity wanted to keep me on. So I still work now three days a week for the charity from home. Wow. Um, and, uh, but have the bliss of being able to travel back to Scotland, uh, uh, for, for work and meetings. And I get to go to conferences and be paid to network. I mean, what a fantastic job. Um, <laughs> and, um, 
I then also locum two days a week. Uh, I found a regular practice here that I, I locum at um, on a regular basis. So um, I'm now closer to mum, who's widow down south, and um, you know, um, just just start fresh, really. We, we we actually met last year we, at the uh, at the guidelines conference at Excel. Is actually is the next one is coming up next week as well, where we'll be at, and um, and we, we and there we started the conversation talking about them. Um, just getting support for locums in Sheffield and you've been quite involved with that as well. I'm trying, haven't trying I? Trying to, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think the thing that I realised when I moved is how incredibly isolating locum work is because I'd, I'd only ever locumed before in places where I knew people. So in London, I, I had a network um, in when I locumed for the last two years in Scotland, I knew so many people. So I was very fortunate. I could pick and choose practices where I, I, I you know, could, could I already knew people and, and, and had that support and that friendship and that, that um, camaraderie. When you move somewhere completely new, that's really daunting. And there's so many different ways you can locum, isn't there? You know, you've got agencies and you've got platforms and you've got just right to the practice manager. And but you have no idea what to charge and you have no idea how to do your BLS training and you don't know how to get your equipment calibrated. And then also what I'd noticed is coming from Scotland. I mean, it took me nearly a year to get on the performers list, which was utter nonsense. Bonkers. Um, and of course I didn't have CQC in Scotland and I hadn't done quaff for years. Um, and so things, although we are in the same, you know, four nations, devolution does cause quite a big difference in, in, in day-to-day general practice. I mean, the medicine's always the same, but mm. it's just the other bits and the pathways that are really challenging. And I, I tried to look and see what was available in Sheffield and I realized that there wasn't a particularly strong locum network. I mean, I reached out to the LMC who said they've been desperately trying to get hold of locums, but as you know, we're a really disparate bunch to get hold of. And because of GDPR, it's made it even more difficult because no one can share details of anyone. You can't have email lists and all the rest of it, you know, and and, and that's made it really, really challenging. So the LMC, despite their best efforts, I really didn't know kind of how to reach out to locums. So that's when I had contacted you and said, can you help? And how, how can we, how can we get a chambers up and running here and try to get, try to get more support for, for locums who, who particularly new ones to the area who, who don't know, don't know anyone and don't know how to do stuff. But, but, but of all, but of all, all in the conversations we've been having, your tenacity has been coming out as well, because you've actually have been keeping up a pressure on local, um, NHS organizations, ICBs and the such like, and federations to, to get this support. And listening now, now to you in this podcast, I'm thinking actually it's so important to have, um, someone who networks, someone who's got that leadership and that drive and that activism just running through their veins. And, um, and, and, and I think it's, it's, it, it, it bodes well, I think, for, for what you want to achieve in, in Sheffield and for the colleagues you're trying to support because you've identified a need and have, have, uh, you're going in this direction, aren't you? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it goes back to that initial thing, you know, like I just not ever been very good at sitting on the sidelines and moaning about stuff. And you're only ever going to make change if you're the one, you know, getting stuck in and doing it yourself. Um, And, uh, and, but it's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard when you don't know anyone, because I think you can come and I'm I'm not always the best. I do sometimes come in a bit like a bull in a China shop. And I think 
maybe maybe I sometimes need to, to sit back a bit more and, and, and observe a bit more before I open my big mouth. But... You just keep doing what you're doing. This works really well. Just, just don't don't worry about that. You just keep going. How to make friends and alienate people or what's the expression? I don't know. Um, so, um, yeah, I, so I think it's, but I, I also, I, you know, I, it, there aren't enough hours in the day, you know, none of that stuff is paid. So you've got to squeeze that in in spare time, which I work full time now. Um, and I have two young children and a house to run and all the rest of it. So things never move quite at the pace or as organized as I'd like them to. Um, but, um, you know, I, I've got the support of the LMC, which is fantastic. You know, they do, they do want to help. Um, I have got local locum colleagues who are really excited that, that there might be more support there That's for them. That's nice to hear. Good. Um, you know, I've set up a WhatsApp group, so I try to share as much information as I can. Um, so as I find things out, you know, I tell them, oh, you can sign up to this email list and find out what the local the latest bariatric nonsense guidelines are going on, you know, or <laughs> the lack of support that there are yeah. for patients, et cetera. You know, because yeah. it's all these things that you just don't, you don't know what's available. Um, so, um but um, but there just aren't enough hours in the day, are there? <laughs> no, no. And, and not and on that then. So outside of all all general practice and everything, you've got you've got two young children. Do you get time to yourself? Do you get time to 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 look after yourself? Do you do you you said you did some 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 activities? You were keeping active. Are you still managing yeah. to find time for all of that? Um, so in between bouts of um, flares of long COVID due to other new COVID illnesses, <laughs> etc. Um, yes, I, um, I joined this fab gym uh, where you get to wear a heart rate monitor and it flashes up on a screen when you're doing too much, which has been ideal for my long COVID recovery. Um, and um, so um, I do that early in the morning. I, if if oh. I'm feeling motivated, I go there about six o'clock in the morning and, and wow. get that done out of the way. Um, but no, I mean, I, I my weekends are sacrosanct. So I do not work on weekends. And Good. I am very, um, I am protecting them fiercely um so i try not to open email or anything on weekends and that for me is our our family time i think that's the only um, way to do it if yeah. It, you, yeah otherwise you just will burn out absolutely well, I, I even raised at the lmc yesterday i said you know is there any way we can get papers for the, the meeting earlier because we get them on a friday and the meetings on a monday evening and i no. said I'm, I'm not going to open them on the weekend you know it's just not you know, I, I think we need to be so careful, don't we? And 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 for those of us who work weekends, then then you must not work. You must have other time in the week which you yeah. put, you put aside. Um, so that's that's the way I manage it at the moment. Um, but um, yeah. I think there's lots of things to take away from this, but that that that's a really good one as well. Is is, is keep your weekend sacred. I'm all for that. Amy, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. I've really enjoyed this, and and I and I'm sure our listeners will have enjoyed this as well. It's really lovely to, to talk about your career and and, and your background and, and what's driving you and this activism and 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 I, and and it's 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 exciting to think that this you've got many years of this ahead of you as well. And and I think many of us will be better benefited already from from that work you've you've been doing and and with others and with organisations like BMA and LMC. So, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, um, and uh, thank you everybody for for listening and do um, subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast channels and um, looking forward to speaking to you again in the future thank you thank you